As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Bob Michael J.P. Morgan, Asset Management, alongside us. Great to catch up with you, Bob, as always. Should we save Liverpool for later in the conversation? Do you want to start with markets? You had an interview with Bloomberg News yesterday. It was really, really interesting about the risk that maybe this Fed does not do enough. Can you talk to us about that risk? Yeah, I, I can't get 2006 out of my mind. The Fed had raised rates from 1% to 5.25%, 425 basis points. Here we are today. They've raised rates by 425 basis points. And then they stopped. And <clears throat> was it enough or wasn't it enough? It took a while for things to slow down. And ultimately, <clears throat> it ended in the financial crisis. But they got to five and a quarter. We're still at four and a quarter. Will they get to 5%? I, I think there's still a lot going on. The labor market's tight. China's reopening. The housing market, although prices are coming down, the competition for houses is still very, very high. So how conservative are you when it comes to this rally that we're seeing emerge in the last couple of weeks, the last few months? Well, we've, we've been part of it. We thought at the end of last year, the markets <clears throat> were ripe for a rally. I was out meeting lots of clients in a lot of places. And a lot of them were telling me they're going back into the bond market for the first time in a while. And they didn't mean a year. A lot of them meant for the first time in seven to eight years. But a lot of them were saying this is the first time they've been in the bond market since the financial crisis. So there was a lot of money desperate to get into bonds, waiting for high real yields. They got it. It's come in. The Fed's thrown a lot at this market. They're probably ripe for a pause. I think the market runs a bit more, and then it pauses when the Fed pauses. I want to go back to 2006 and your observation pre-GFC. And what's so important to me, and this goes to, without question, uh, the observation of the year last year, Nassim Taleb saying the gravity has returned uh, to the system. All of a sudden, the dynamics harken back to 2006. And what I remember then was the overshoot in real estate. It was hugely advanced, hugely inflated. Down we came and overshot through the log regression. Are we going to see that this year with bonds where the yields, the price moves so much that we overshoot in certain ways? Well, well, well the overshoot in real estate occurred because the ample supply of pretty much low-cost money right. was around everywhere. And that's <clears throat> happened over the last couple of years. So that costless liquidity has been sloshing around for a few years. 
And we've only recently started to remove it from the system. So, yeah, I, I do con get concerned that there will be an overshoot. We do <clears throat> get concerned that there are bubbles out there that will burst. It's really hard to identify them. But the one thing we're pretty sure of is the only way this ends is with the recession. You have to have right. a recession to really cool things down mm -hmm. and reset. Amber Evans Pritchard at The Telegraph yesterday with Ken Rogoff. Lisa Bramwitz talking with Ken and Davos. And Ken Rogoff made clear this is a different shadow bank than 2006. But nevertheless, there are shadows within the banking system. How does that devolve into J.P. Morgan fixed income? Well, by definition, shadow banking is shadowy. Um, so we need to be concerned. Should we quote him on that? <clears throat> we can, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we need to be concerned about that. Um, but there's a lot of shadow banking that's occurred in the private capital markets that have financed a lot of things that may have made sense two or three years ago. Do they make sense today? Are there write-downs coming there? Where will We're those write-downs asking, write are there write-downs? Is there excesses oh, sure. within private equity? I, I think it. we look at private capital in total, and we look at a lot of the private credit transactions, for sure, there are going to be restructurings, exchanges, right Is he talking about Man U? I'm not sure. I don't okay. think so, okay. given that's a public Continue. company. Yeah. Can we talk about how what's happening in private markets could introduce a new set of risks into public markets? I'm told repeatedly, you are too, that high yield is stronger, that the quality is much higher than it was maybe a few years ago, five, ten years ago, especially in the last decade. Bob, do you push back against that, knowing that there is this risk here in private markets that could spill into public markets? So I've heard those arguments before every single recession. This time, high yield will hold in. We have to remember, really, the high yield market got started in the 80s when it became public and investors could get invested in it. So it's not been around for a, a long time, and there have only been a handful of recessions. Every single time headed into a recession, it holds in well because this time is different. And every single time in a recession, credit spreads blow out to a minimum of 800 over. And yes, it may look higher quality, but when defaults start to hit, when the economy goes into recession, when corporate profitability comes under a lot of pressure, investors will reprice that market. The one thing that I worry about this time that is genuinely different is the amount of investment in the private credit markets. And if you start to have problems there where you start to get restructurings, defaults, exchanges that are in the 20% neighborhood, Investors in those spaces may only have the public markets as their relief valve. You sell what you can, not what you want. Ultimately, exactly. the feature of what we could exactly. see. There's a question that's just been asked on the Bloomberg by a terminal subscriber that I'd like to share with you. Could you ask Bob about how what's different this time versus 2008 and that we know the Fed has QE and they know how to use it. The risk of severe credit risk contagion was real back then. Not anymore, question mark. How would you respond to that? Um, I think what, what is different this time is everyone's on the lookout for a bubble. There is there complacency or not? We've all been expecting a recession. It hasn't come yet. There are a lot of reasons why it may be pushed off until the back half of, of this year or, or maybe into to next year. 
and and you do have new tools out there. I think one of the problems is that while we have QE, we're also running QT now, and and that's an experiment that we haven't lived through before. I mean, let's face it, we are living through history, and we don't know how it will be written, but we shut down the world for some period over the last three years, and now the last of it is just starting to emerge and return to normal, and we've got to adjust for all of that. It, it just seems very aspirational to me that it's all going to end in a soft landing, we'll reset and move on. Nothing about this is normal, that's for sure. But Michael, JP Morgan Asset Management is going to be sticking with us, I'm pleased to say, going through to retail sales in about 20 minutes' time. I think we can squeeze in some sport now, but what, what's going on? Your beloved Liverpool. We can talk about the Eagles in a moment because that's a better story. But your beloved Liverpool. I, 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 I can take it this year. Last year, with the bond bear market, if Liverpool had gone off the rails, that would have been a disaster. Right now, there is a bond bull market. There has been some reset. Money's coming into the market. I can live with some restructuring of Liverpool. I like what Klopp did in the FA Club. He played the younger players. Hungry. They're hungrier. They were livelier. Can I, can I ask you, you know, I'm the amateur here. Does the World Cup screw this up? I mean, the Tots are playing in a cloud. Liverpool's subpar, to say the least. I mean, they get Arsenal there in the World Cup, too. But the World Cup, as you say, in the middle of the season, has that... It's disrupted. Disrupted? It's disrupted me. I mean, I was just overwhelmed by the amount of football. Salah? So I thought it might disrupt the teams with momentum. In the Premier League, that was Arsenal. In Italy, that was Napoli. We've restarted the season. Italy They've got was in momentum. the World Cup? No. Oh. I just thought I just <laughs> thought stopping for a month would disrupt the momentum of the high-flying teams, yeah. and that hasn't happened. That was such a poor day. I'm learning every day. What? No, you're not. You, you know they, Italy, they, wasn't They it? pulled it off. It was a great World Cup. Liverpool-Chelsea, time to come back. Yeah. Come on. Is that Fingers a derby? Crossed. Which one? Liverpool-Chelsea. No. no. Okay. <laughs> Think Everton. There's another blue team. Up in Merseyside, Tom, called Everton. Or you would call it Everton, but okay. Everton, Liverpool, that's the dark. So, so Fulham is on the way into Heathrow. Where's, Fulham, where's, West where's London. Chelsea, Chelsea, West London. So that would be a West London derby. Chelsea, Chelsea Fulham. Fulham as well. Chelsea, okay, Fulham. got it. Thank you. The dysfunction here of the flows in the capital ownership of debt is tangible, and you see it with the Japanese and other percentage of debt. Do you have an inherent fear within your strategy when you see ratios like 260% or where another nation owns 8% of France's debt? I, I've got so many thoughts on the Bank of J Japan. One, I think they missed an opportunity. I I would have done something today and keep the process going of get to something that looks normal while the rest of the world is doing it. We talk about the top end of the band is half a percent. The target's actually zero, and official rates are actually minus 10 basis points. So there's a lot of room to get things uh, looking somewhat normal while you're printing 4% inflation. And then start the process of transitioning the bond market out of the BOJ hands into public hands, into private investor hands. Get that process going. Now, as I'm saying that, I also get concerned about what that means for assets in the rest of the world, because many of us in the markets for a long time have known that Japan is the mother of the carry trade, that Japan finances carry trades in the U.S. Explain market, what in the a European carry trade market. Is. That's where Liverpool <clears throat> takes someone from the tots and borrows them. I get that. What? That's jargon. What is a carry trade? A, a carry trade is to use the very low cost of funding 
in <clears throat> Japan and then take your capital at your cost of funding and then send it to somebody like me to invest in the U.S. bond market in the corporate bond market at yields of 4 or 5% or higher. So you're enjoying a much higher yield than you would have by staying in the so domestic market. So how do you market. think these changes that we're seeing in the last month, and potentially again in March, will change how you do business and ultimately on the behalf of other people who want to invest abroad from Japan? Well, I think we're already starting to see some signs of repatriation. We're starting to see some clients that have had money um, in the U.S. market start to take it back and, and put it back into the Japan bond market. And when you look at U.S. assets hedge back to yen, you're actually coming out at a yield that's significantly lower than where the JGB market is. So a lot of it is the dynamic of the inverted yield curve in the U.S. So, so that's pretty punitive. I think the Bank of Japan has to be careful how they unwind all these things so they don't create this frenzy of repatriation. But I, as I said, I, I think they can be consistent without creating this sort of frenzy. There is a part of me that thinks, great, price discovery returns. We can start calling these places markets again. Then I look at the size of the balance sheets and I just think, well, there's a real stock effect here that's going to exist for a long, long yep. time. But there's two ways of looking at it, isn't there? This is the final anchor around the neck of global bond yields, about to be released by Japan, and that should, should have some real consequences. The other way of looking at it is still, we have these massive balance sheets of the ECB, the Federal Reserve, the BOJ. They're going to be around for a long time. Which one is it? I think it's both of those. This is the conversation I'm having a lot with our clients because we think we have put in a secular low in bond yields and a secu the end of the secular free-for-all in costless capital. And, and we're in a trend that will return the cost of funding to something that looks historically more no normal, central bank rates, bond market rates to something that looks more normal. But it doesn't happen all at once. You don't go from zero to a Okay, Fed but over that time continuum, what do you do with duration? Are you in two year, two months? Are you on three-month LIBOR? We'll get oh, to that. Tom Diamond, we got to be in three-month LIBOR? Tom, it took 27 years to get the Fed funds rate from 20% right, to 0%. So how long is that And you time had back? a series of lower lows and lower highs. I think we're seeing the mirror image of that. We're going where we're going to have a series of higher mm -hmm. highs and higher lows, but every 3 to 500 basis point shift in the cost of funding through central bank rates will have an impact and then they'll have to come back and take some of that back and then they'll start up again. I've got 2 minutes on the clock. I've got to fit this in. You and I have talked about this before. This is a huge thing that I think you're really at the forefront of. You're basically saying that it's going to take several cycles to basically unwind what we've seen over the last several decades. Can you tell me what's changed in the secular story of the last 30 years and why you're projecting that out the next several cycles? What's changed? What's that powerful story that's going to unwind all of this? Well, th there's one certainly in the developed markets. I remember after the financial crisis, we were all sitting there going, oh, my God, what do we do with all this housing stock? The, the baby boomers are rolling over into retirement. And the millennials are too young. The 91 bursts um, at the time were, were what? They were 17 years old. Well, guess what? 13, 14 years has just passed. The 91 bursts 
are now 32 years old. Yeah, still they're, living with me. <laughs> but, well, they're, they're hitting their peak of earning, spending, and saving, right. much like the baby boomers did in the 1980s. And suddenly, all the housing we didn't invest right. in after the financial crisis, we need it back again. So there are some right. real capital expenditure plans out there. Sustainable investment, defense, infrastructure, healthcare, education, those are things that a new emerging population of millennials, the XYZ, whatever you want to call it, they're going to be willing to spend and invest in. But Michael, this is awesome. From JP I was Morgan. trying to get Fantastic. the it was, too, it was too smart. I couldn't get it. And you got seconds left. Question. Maybe next. Okay. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. I want to try and understand from the Europeans, Tom, is whether the situation we went through this summer, last summer, fearing this winter, whether we repeat that act right. this coming summer, approaching next winter. There's someone to help us with that, Simon French, chief economist, Pamela Gordon, and the British media particularly writing some really thoughtful essays. Simon, thank you so much for joining today. At the margin, it seems like Europe is being buffeted by good news, including China reopening. Has Pamir Gordon shifted the 2023 euro call? No, we haven't. We went into the year thinking that actually the behavioural response you were looking for across two parameters would play out in terms of a more dynamic behaviour. What are those two parameters? First of all, energy usage. And I think Jonathan gave a good sort of tee up in terms of next winter. What are the dynamics? Well, the strongest argument for why the dynamics might be more favourable than consensus is that you're seeing quite significant behavioural change in terms of energy consumption, which there is no reason with an extra 12 months why that can't actually be amplified. And the second thing we're seeing in corporate results, not just across Europe, but you mentioned you know, corporate results in the United States as well, is signs now that households, uh, which have paradoxically strengthened their balance sheets over the last two to three years, starting to divest more rapidly actually in the US, they're more the way through that cycle, but we're starting to see the data in Europe suggesting that the back end right. of Q4, where it was thought of a, a slamming shut of the European wallets was not that path. We saw both those behavioural changes coming to pass. I think the data's on our side, but look, we're still early days. There could be a New Year hangover. Right. Simon, we were talking earlier about the glide path on interest rates. There's an idea of disinflation, maybe ever so slight in the United Kingdom as well. There's a, a I'm going to call it the zeitgeist understanding. In the United States, we come down, we don't know where to, 5%, 4%, dare I say 3%, maybe not 2%. Is there a consensus understanding of a disinflation vector in Europe, I don't see it. 
No, no, there isn't. And your the ECB commentary, which you've been alluding to, um, if you like, reflects the national interests of the national governments in terms of how their economies may have quite different experience of stubborn core inflation, which really is going to be the the, the, the headline piece of data, perhaps not on our screens each morning, but in terms of what's going to affect the ECB response function and each of the ECB governing council's decisions. So the fact that we have amongst investors a very, very different view as to whether, actually, you mentioned a glide to 543. I mean, there are quite a number of people who think we'll see active disinflation over a, or deflation by uh, the sort of middle part of 2024 versus those people, and I think I sit in the latter camp, who expect quite a lot of quite stubborn, quite sticky inflation because a lot of corporates are trying to rebuild margins, trying to delay the pass-through that they couldn't do in one go because of the price shocks of 2022, and therefore they're going to pass them through in 23, 24, 25 as part of rebuilding their corporate margins and a delayed pass-through of inflationary pressures. Sam, can we talk about who's in a driving seat at the European Central Bank? I got the impression at the last meeting with President Lagarde that really felt like the Bundesbank was back in control. It was so punchy, the most hawkish I've ever heard her in a news conference. Mm. What did you make of that? Uh, that it was going to be data dependent. Yes, it was hawkish, but as always, and we mustn't, you know, this is far too clever an audience to fall into the idea that these are unconditional statements. For years, both, you know, when policy was uh, left at the zero lower bound, and we were talking about when we were going to leave that, and now when we're talking about the, the pathway through to a plateau, through to a terminal rate, we have to recognise that statements, even one as punchy as December's, was conditional to how the data evolves. And the, the fact that we have now in Davos this week and we're going to get in the run-up to the next ECB Governing Council different takes on that data is that, if you like, turf war going on on how you interpret that stickiness of inflation and the degree to which that commentary in December persists through Q1. There was a phrase that echoed in December. It was sufficiently restrictive. Started with the Fed. We heard it at the ECB as well. If you'd asked me, Simon, what was sufficiently restrictive for this ECB maybe a year ago, I'd say they'd struggled again get to one, two, not three, because I thought this market would just completely collapse under the weight of what they were doing. Simon, that hasn't happened in the way that many people, including myself, anticipated. I guess my question to you is, first of all, why do you think that is? Is the bond market more resilient than we thought it would be? And secondly, where do you see sufficiently restrictive now with that in mind? Well, look, that's very honest, Jonathan. Myself, I would also put myself in the camp that you were in, which I didn't, I didn't see this. So we have to have a degree of humility, don't we, when we're appraising what happens next. But in terms of why we haven't seen the level of, if you like, uh, market capitulation in the face of a rising risk-free rate, there are two things to note. One, um, there is a delayed pass-through. Monetary policy has famously long and variable lags. Have we seen the full impact of monetary tightening, particularly in private markets, in fixed asset repo? pricing, the revaluation cycle. No, I don't think we have. So the jury is still out in terms of the long-term economic impact. But, and I've written quite a lot about this, and I think Tom's alluded to this in his very kind intro, is potentially a return to a higher risk-free rate has a nice side effect in terms of productivity improvement, the allocation of capital, right. the type of thing that has undermined economic growth. Jo uh, you know, Tom, I know you've talked a lot about the impacts of financial repression on trend economic growth on productivity 
potentially investors, and I've talked to a lot of investors who see the potential corollary of a high risk-free rate, yeah. a return to more normalized levels of productivity and a welcome return. That may be one of the explanatory factors. I mean, and this is really important, folks, and this centers on my optimism here on things clear, corporations change. If there's a great misjudge, I would suggest, Simon, it's led by the European, the American, the Pacific Rim consumer as well. If Pam or Gordon sum together your confidence the consumer can deliver the goods? Well, if you take the data points in terms of the excess savings that took place throughout the, the pandemic years, 2020, 2021, um, with, I, the, the US consumer has begun quite a considerable divestment phase, but they still have, while the savings ratio is normalized and will possibly and is starting to undershoot, there is still a stock effect that can support consumer spending. Europe, and I include the UK in this, is on a much more delayed pathway. We've only just begun that divestment phase, but it, it circles around to consumer confidence, to sentiment, the degree to which balance sheet flex from consumers is buttressed by the fact that the labour market remains strong. You think you, can, you don't need as much of a rainy day fund for potential redundancy unemployment because you think the labour market will remain strong. Those indicators are still very robust and that allows, if you like, a divestment cycle to support the consumer. If the labour market starts to turn, then we get a very, very different response function in terms of consumers and we'll see <coughs> corporate reporting replicate that sentiment. Simon, super smart as always, buddy, and it has been way too long. Let's do this again soon. Simon French there of Panmore Gordon, Tom, <laughs> on the latest on the European and I guess global yeah. economy as well. Let's get the economic look. And John, I want you to help me out here. Veronica Clark uh, can frame for us the Citigroup conundrum, which, John, I believe, as Mr. Hollenhorst discusses, 50 or 25 basis points. Do you want to bring sure. Miss Clark in I'd here right now I'd love so to. we can decide and make some news here they had a wonderful, on the Citigroup call? A wonderful 2022. Let's talk about 23. Veronica, thank you for being with us. You've been leaning towards this idea that we get another 50 basis point move from this Federal Reserve. How challenged do you think that view is now with the incoming information? Yeah, I mean, it was already a close call, I think, even going back a week ago when we got CPI. Um, and certainly what we've, we've heard from Fed ever since. Um, I do still think, though, that the market could be underappreciating you know, the chance that the Fed would opt to go 50. Um, I think the, the market is misinterpreting, you know, the, the, the Fed's commitment to getting rates above 5%, certainly. Veronica, we're all slaves to the data. Every Fed and every textbook and every history book is data dependent. You guys got out front of this and the data has backed up the Citigroup uh, call. What is the data that matters to you less to February 1 and much more to look on uh, to what we see May 3rd or June 14? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the most important data is still inflation data. Um, and I would bump along with that, you know, wage data. Um, maybe we've seen some signs of, of wage growth slowing, but you still have such a tight labor market that I wouldn't necessarily expect wages slowing back to something consistent with 2% inflation. Um, and, and the most important inflation data, I think, should be the, the Fed's preferred core PCE measure. Um, and some of the details of PPI that we got this morning will matter for that. We are still expecting, you know, stronger core PCE than, than what the Fed even has. As, um, certainly than what the market's well, expecting. Are you going to reaffirm right now 50 basis points? Is that what I'm hearing? 
Yeah, I think that that chance is still underappreciated. We do have some some important Fed speakers still to hear from, um, and the chance is, is lower, you know, certainly. Um, but we also wouldn't necessarily adjust how high we think rates will end up going, even if it's not a 50 in February, we'd just expect that the Fed's hiking no. for longer. Did she make news there? No, stuck Damn. to the script. I'm trying. I'm not going to cause any trouble over I'm, at City. I'm trying. Veronica, that was great. Thank you. Veronica Clark there of City Global Markets. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Lisa Abramowitz there, Justin from the Piano Bar. Let me get my surveillance watch out and look at the time changes. Lisa Abramowitz with one of my favorite people, Fadi B-Roll of IEA. Good morning, Lisa. Good morning, Tom, and thank you for that. I am here with Fadi Birol, Executive Director of the International Agency for Energy. And there is this question here at a time when you are the busiest ever of trying to get a handle on an energy market that has defied everyone. I was speaking yesterday with Chevron CEO, and he said he could see an argument for oil prices going to 150 or going to $50. Do you agree? I think he's a businessman. I am sure he knows uh, what he's uh, talking about because he makes money or loses uh, money, and I hope he has a, a good view about the markets. But when I look at the markets uh, this uh, year, 2023, there are many, many uncertainties. But if you ask me, which is the big, biggest uncertainty, I would say it is China. The reason is very simple. Uh, uh, last year, 2022, for the first time since 40 years, Chinese oil and gas demand declined. So it never happened in the last 40 years. And uh, this year, Chinese economy is reopening, and uh, we, we may see Chinese economy growing strongly. And if Chinese demand for oil is strong, it would uh, put uh, upward pressure on the uh, prices. So China is, for me, the, uh, the biggest, perhaps, uh, uncertainty, followed by the oil-producing countries' uh, policies. Okay, so we'll get into the oil-producing countries' uh, policies. Sticking with China for a moment, do you have a sense of how much energy, how much coal, how much uh, crude they've already stockpiled to get ahead of a reopening that could potentially dampen how much activity could translate directly into demand for crude? No, I think a uh, Chinese oil demand, uh, 
will definitely increase uh, this year. The question is how much. There is no question that I don't believe that if there is a reopening of China, which goes smoothly as uh, the Chinese leaders uh, here and uh, in China uh, claim, uh, it, it may mean uh, that the Chinese oil uh, demand will increase, unlike last year, which declined. So it means that the, it will be a biggest driver of the global oil demand because when you look at it in the in a normal year, about half of the global oil demand uh, growth comes from China, other half of the growth comes from everybody put together. So therefore, uh, China's uh, oil demand will bring about 800, 900,000 barrels per day additional oil demand growth to the markets. You just put out a paper that said that we're actually oversupplied right now, that there is more oil than there is demand in the markets. How much would it take to change that? Very little, because the, the cushion is not as big as uh, the, the, the consumers of the world uh, would like to see. It's a very tiny bit. If the Chinese economy, for example, surprises us uh, on the uh, higher side, if the economy grows instead of 4%, 5%, 6%, that uh, cushion will uh, disappear uh, very quickly. So therefore, we shouldn't be relaxed to see that uh, the oil markets uh, this year will be uh, comfortable uh, and without any problems. This will be more on the uh, optimistic side looking from the uh, the world's consumer's point of view. Are there any lessons taken from what we saw in the summer of last year with respect to demand destruction? At what level the price has to get to in crude where people just stop buying and there's sort of a natural ceiling? I think it's depending on the country. I mean, it's different in the United States, different in Europe, different in India and uh, Peru, uh, the lower-income uh, countries. But uh, I see that if the prices come around $70 to $75, uh, it is a uh, a good signal uh, for the consumers uh, around the world. But that, that, that's a good, like, that they will continue to buy, but higher than that, not so much? It is, it's especially for the, when you look at the numbers, it is especially for the developing world, which is the most important one, uh, because their financial muscles are much weaker compared to North American or the European uh, or the Japanese uh, consumers. I think up, uh, above 70, 75, it becomes uh, very difficult uh, for them to absorb that increase in the prices. Do you feel like there needs to be more investment in fossil fuel companies that have been abandoned in the past couple of years for ESG types of priorities? I think the, the, when you talk about, uh, for example, United States, I don't think that the oil companies have uh, difficulties to invest in terms of availability of the money. They have a lot of money in their uh, uh, pocket, and I think what they have uh, preferred, instead of investing, they have preferred uh, to pay it back to the, uh, the shareholders. And uh, when you look at uh, last the year 2022, the oil and gas industry, uh, the windfall revenues, reach four trillion U.S. dollars. Uh, in a normal year, normally it's about 1.5 trillion, and last year they make four trillion. So uh, nobody can convince me that they don't have enough money to invest, uh, to be honest with you. It means they don't have the intention, they pay back to their uh, shareholders. We've been talking about the potential for an upside surprise with respect to demand if China comes back online. What if there is a fairly deep recession, or even a mild recession. How much could oil prices fall from here just because of people hunkering down and not being as active? 
I think if depending on the how deep the recession is, how wide the recession is, uh, but if it's a mild recession, I don't think that we will see a big drop of the uh, uh, the oil prices as we have seen during the COVID uh, times. But it will definitely put a downward pressure on the prices if there is a widespread recession around the world. But I don't believe that China, the largest oil importer of the world, will go to a recession. Uh, hopefully not uh, this year. How do you think that the refueling, the refilling, I should say, of the strategic petroleum reserve in the U.S. this year, potentially starting next month, will affect pricing? Do you think that this is sort of uh, going to be a swing factor in 2023? I don't believe so. I believe the uh, U.S. government uh, will make it in a gradual manner and a careful manner so that it doesn't uh, create a major challenge for the oil markets. And we should not forget that when the prices shoot up about over $100, the SPR played a very good role for U.S. and for the global oil markets. So you actually thought it was a positive move? Uh, very much so. I think I, I believe U.S. citizens and the entire world should be very happy to have SPRs in the United States and many other countries in the world. Fatih Birol of the IAA, thank you so much for being with us, John. Sending it back to you. Lisa, thank you. Fantastic work, as always. You missed over here in New York City. Lisa Bramitz alongside Fatih Birol there of the IEA with that iconic backdrop in Dallas, Switzerland, Tom. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.